Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is late morning in California on November the 1st. You don't need to tell me what's happening tomorrow. We all know uh, we're living in the now, but of course we also need to rely on historians not only to make sense of the now, but to make sense of not only the past, but I think also the future. Historians tend to be the best predictors of what's about to happen. One of the things that strikes me about um, the presidential campaign in the United States, which is on everybody's mind around the world, is the absence of any conversation about war. Uh, Biden and Trump have been going at each other's morality, their economics, or their lack of sensitivity. Uh, but there's been no discussion of war. And Margaret Macmillan, uh, who is perhaps one of the world's, not perhaps, certainly one of the world's leading contemporary and modern historians, has just come out with an important new book on war entitled War, How Conflict Shaped Us. So, Margaret, uh, I, I apologize for being a little bit too contemporary and living in the now. Are you surprised, intrigued by the fact that in this current Biden-Trump election, there's been no discussion of war? They've been so focused on domestic issues, and I think also trying to fit for office, that I think they've discussed foreign policy generally very little. And I do find it, well, surprising and worrying, because if there's something that needs to be thinking it's the position of the United States in the world. And it's still involved in wars at the moment in Afghanistan and Iran. There are wars going on around the world and there are also trouble spots which, which could produce future wars. And so while, while people aren't understandably, there's an awful lot going wrong in a great big world outside. And, and sooner or later, I think they're gonna have to worry uh, you suggested, I think, in, 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 in your first response to the question that you weren't a big fan of Trump. Do you think his unwillingness to fight in the Vietnam War um, says a lot about him? And, and what do you make of his fetishization of, of American troops and American military strength? I'm not sure I blame people for being unwilling to fight. And, and you know, I was Vietnam War was on and it was a very unpopular war. I would be critical of your president's refusal to accept that he what did actually have a very human failing and to try and claim that he suffered as much, you know, dealing with, with disease, sexually transmitted disease in the 70s as people did in Vietnam. I mean, I, I find the uh, ludicrous what she sort of tries to compare his experience in New York to those who actually fought in Viet Vietnam very distasteful. And I also don't like the way in which he talks way, you know, he was going to just utterly destroy it and do what he wanted. In fact, I think, and I probably find it a bit hard to say anything positive about your say, he's 
kept the United States out of wars. And I think that has not been a bad thing. I think since the end of the Cold War, the United States has found itself in low-level conflicts, which have consumed American lives and consumed American resources and not to very clear purpose. And so I do think out of war at times is a good thing. What can seem to be accompanied by any sense of strategy or, or what the United States place in the I don't want to have this whole conversation about the United States and certainly not Trump. But do you think that American involvement in recent wars has spilt over into the police and into attitudes towards violence and that America, for better or worse, has never really been at peace and perhaps will never be at peace as like any great power? Well, being a great power, it means that others are going to try and attack you and it like it or not, are going to have to have response. I think at the moment it is a particularly difficult time for the United States because it is, I think, true that what it was at the end of the 1980s or even in the 1990s, it's still the world's but that superpower is no longer what once was. And I think that's an uneasy realization power as they feel themselves or it feels itself perhaps beginning to, to, to lose the British Empire went in the period before the First World War. I think what is also probably troubling at the moment in its election is there's really a debate over what the United States is. And it's, there is a dangerous escalation of language. And, and language escalates when you get the rhetoric, when both at each other as, as if they are not part of the same community and, and as if they, their intent is evil spread of this is troubling because even though it's in the streets, it always has that potential to become something much more dangerous. And, you know, I think it curated how, how much the United States is facing the problems that other countries have faced in the past. But it seems to me it is a time both for internal domestic reaction of the United States in the world and the state of the world itself. You know, it's, it's a turbulent world. And there are in the world, which do make and perhaps armed conflict war more likely. Well, turbulence, Margaret, has been the your middle name in your in your academic career. You've written about different periods of turbulence in world history brilliantly. Uh, this book grew out of a uh, the wreath lectures, a very distinguished BBC lectures that you gave on war and humanity. In which you t ask if if war is, a, is an essential part of being human. Um, explain what that means. This idea of of war and defining ourselves is war essential to, to to the human condition? Well, if it's not essential, it's been very much part of the human condition for as far back as hell. I mean, as far back as we have any evidence and records. It seems to have organized ourselves into groups and that those groups have often fought with each other. I mean, I much as organized groups using violence against each other. So a fight between two people to me is not war. That's a different sort of conflict, perhaps springs out of different reasons, fear. And although peoples can fight because they're afraid, I think war is highly organized. And it does seem to go back into the long way. There was a big debate, as, as you know, whether this is something inherent in human nature, whether we are just by nature, 
or whether it is in fact culturalization that makes us go to war with each other. And I think I probably come down on the side of saying it's not something that is driven. I mean, we certainly have this, including fear and including a tendency to lash out when we're afraid. But when you think of the sheer organization, I think cultural factors are much more that societies organize themselves, they have the skills, they inculcate those values in their young as, as sparse and that makes people's more like and so, so I tend to come down on the side that it is to do both with organization and culture to war. So Margaret, you're, you're, you're a Rousseauan as opposed to a Hobbesian when it comes to war. In the beginning of your book, you talked about this distinction between Hobbes, who of course founds his whole philosophy, his political philosophy, on our supposed fear, or certainly his fear of war, and Rousseau, who had a much more optimistic reading of man. We had, uh, I'm sure you know him, David Runciman, the professor of politics from Cambridge on the show recently, to talk about um, to talk about why he thinks Hobbes is the key modern philosopher. Do you see then Rousseau as being at least your your guide in terms of making sense of humanity and war? Uh, no, I don't actually. I'm not sure I see either as my guides, although I think the argument between their ideas is a very interesting one. Rousseau painted a picture. He knew that it wasn't reality. He painted a picture of time before organization, time before humans beings had, had begun to set up harmony with each other in nature. And I think whatever evidence we have for sort of hunter-gatherer societies, um, harmony does not necessarily seem part of it. And he tended, although his thought is very complex, he tended to blame organization um, on the on the on producer. And I, I don't think I agree with that. Hobbes was saying, is that life before there was any organization was pretty awful. You know, that famous phrase, life was brutish and, and nasty and uh, true. But the problem with organization is it can both bring peace. Um, you know, if you, if you have a monopoly of a state, that state can enforce peace, even though its means may not be very attractive. But at the same time, the more organization, the more effectively that state can fight others. And so I'm not sure but I come, I said, probably through sort of historian's fashion, I'll come down somewhere in the middle. So, so you don't think that the social contract is originally rooted in our fear of war and our, and our determination to avoid violence? I think there is something that, true in what you say. Rousseau had gone a very long, wrong way, that we had gone from what he assumed was a sort of peaceful, harmonious society we had gone through a period where the more powerful had simply exploited those who were weaker. What he was suggesting is we needed to move beyond the social contract. It would be a, so almost a new beginning that people would say to the government, okay, or say to each other, contract with each other, we will live together with each other. But even then, I think Rousseau was mystic, although he talked about it, about the possibility of that social contract being extended beyond a single group to scene. There could be some sort of international where states agreed that they would work together. I think he, he that. I mean, it's an age problem. I mean, how do we deal with different organized forces and how do we try and make them work together? And how, how do we, and it's a real problem, how do we prevent those who might be hostile to us from destroying us? You know, the choices that, that people had to face in, in the 1930s, 
example, when they had to decide whether or not against the Nazis who threatened to destroy them. I mean, not just destroy the, the states, but literally destroy them as a people. These choices are e easy and those who would like to get rid of war altogether, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. And I don't think we should be Suddenly everyone's going to become very nice and states will stop wanting to, to fight each other. And so I think we need to think about war, if only to try and find, importantly, to try and find ways of controlling, preventing it. Um, we may never go fully, but I think it's in all our interest to try and limit it as much as possible. But you're too good a historian, Margaret, to argue that war is always bad. You refer in your book to your Stanford University uh, fellow historian, Walter Scheidel. He's been on the show. He wrote a book called The Great Leveler, which suggests that the only way in which inequality ever gets fixed in historical terms is either through civil war or some other kind of catastrophe. Sometimes the consequences of war in, in socioeconomic and political terms are actually pretty good, aren't they? Well, they are. And, and you know, I've, I've been accused that I think war is a good thing because it has good consequences. And I don't mean that at all. I think Walter's pointing to something very important, that sometimes when we as societies face great catastrophes, and he talks, of course, about pandemics and economic catastrophes and also revolutions as well as war, that sometimes those societies pull themselves together, manage to um, build something that, that works, in order to protect themselves and defend themselves, and sometimes has long-term consequences in peacetime. And so, yes, he argues in that book, and I, I found it a very persuasive argument, that in the face of, of great war, societies often pull together and do become more equal. And he produces, I think, very convincing evidence that this is so. So the number of those societies on both sides who fought experienced greater levels of equality after the war. But it is, of course, very unfortunate that for some reason, ACs seem to be able to focus our attention on great challenges, have a great catastrophe. And, you know, we're, we're now, now, I think, the pandemic today is having, it's, it's revealing to us, we knew we're not quite right about our societies, and in fact, are often very wrong. And I think we are thinking now about how we deal with it, and we're taking Six months ago, so we would have thought highly unlikely. I mean, the way governments have, have been, for example, intervening in the economy who are out of work. And it is a shock that it takes something like this to make us recognize that we need to do things differently. Sometimes a great catastrophe, including benefits, which, you know, we get at it another way. Margaret, you made your name as a historian in, in your book about uh, the peace of the First World War. And I, you're one of the world's leading authorities on, on, on World War One. Uh, your book, this new book, is not about World War One, but you spend quite a lot of time in the book on it. You talk about the, the, the First World War poets, Owen on the British side, Remarque, the, the German novelist. Um, was the First World War, the war, as they said at the time, the war to end all wars, was it perhaps the most profound war in, 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 in human history? Well, I, I hate to try and sort of make comparisons more profound than other invasions, which huge numbers of people, and in today's terms, perhaps as many as 50 million people, the equivalent, um, it's, its effects were profound. But the ones that we know best and, and we're living with the consequences of are the First and Second World Wars. And they were 
scale and a magnitude and wars that made demands on societies, and which also had increasing goals. I mean, you, you talk about the First World War was a war to end all wars. In my view, a very dangerous goal, because what you're doing is, is, is setting probably an impossible target. The danger, I think, in such wars is that you then see those, those who stand in the way as, as simply or obstacles that should be eliminated. And I think that a war to make peace can be a very dangerous. And I do think the consequences of that war, I think, are really still, they've shaped Europe, they've, they've had a huge impact on the world. Second World War, of course, probably without the First World War, it's perhaps even greater, and it's certainly its destruction was even greater. And we're still, still living, we probably do spend a lot of time on those two, something particularly appalling about them simply because of their total nature not only appalling but profound the causes of the war the outcome the russian revolution one of the things i don't mean to sound too much like an old fart but one of the things that troubles me about my kids education is they don't know much about the first world war i think it should be the the one thing that all kids learn especially the causes of the first world war because they seem still to be so unclear they reveal the profundity of the historical method and also the way in which outcomes can't be predicted and often accidental do you think that we teach enough about war in schools i mean you're obviously a professional historian you teach the university of toronto and oxford so you teach this stuff but do you think enough attention is paid to wars in education no i don't think it depends on the country but i don't think enough is i, I think to think that war is so dis we want to consider it or we can consider only certain aspects of it we consider perhaps one battle for the british the battle of the song is something again and again in the first world war um, i don't i think you know that the, the war is something that if we don't think about signs in our own strikes me so much for 1914 is that there are features and of course, of course there you know, they're, they're never exact features before 1914 that are in our landscape as well. You know, there was a real complacency in Europe before 1914 that they had become, they'd made such progress and their economies were so intertwined that war would be impossible and foolish and just totally improbable. War, which was going to destroy a lot of those people who thought that and destroy four great empires and, and shake mm. Europe to its core. And I think we have a of us i'm older than you i've grown up since the end of the second world war in what people in the west call the long peace and we forget that the war does still happen you know there's been a war since 1945 but it's been somewhere else and it's been other people mm. fighting for the most part and i think that there is a complacency that about how wars occurred in the past we 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 avert our eyes but i think we should be careful because war has not way and great plans, even smaller powers, are still making preparations for war. You know, it may be defensive, but they're still preparing for it. And the First World War, war had causes, yes, but I think in the end it's an accident. are very worrying because accident in history. You know, if the Archduke hadn't gone to Sarajevo, he hadn't, his car hadn't taken the wrong turning, it's still, well, he wouldn't still be alive, but he might have lived to a ripe old age like, it, like his uncle, great uncle did. You know, so it worries me. Mm, I think everybody should walk on that bridge in Sarajevo. And th there's a wonderful book, I'm sure you know it, by the uh, Viennese historian Bloom, The Vertigo Years, which I think really does accurately 
suggest that the vertiginous nature of the early 21st century and of the pre-First World War age are pretty similar. Uh, Margaret, you're obviously a, a woman um, writing about war. War is primarily a male thing, certainly in historical terms. You begin your book with a wonderful quote from Svetlana Aleksevich, who won the Nobel Prize, she says, she writes, war remains as it's always been one of the chief human mysteries. Uh, is that a mystery that only women can figure out? Oh, I don't think so. I think it's a mystery that we all or should try to figure out. And, and perhaps, I mean, one of the, at the, at the war, I think, is this extraordinary puzzle, and there are many, but the one that haunts me is the best in human beings. Abuse. People who behave appallingly at times, but who can also behave nobly, it also produces, and, and that seems to me something of what she's of what she's getting at. But I think women have every trying to understand this is we haven't fought as much. Um, but probably ninety nine point nine percent of those who fought through history, we have often been cheerleaders, and of course we've often been the victims of war and so i think we have an interest and, and a stake in war every much as bit as as men more and more women are actually in armed forces and in combat role uh i, I begin i began uh, margaret by uh, suggesting that uh historians make as good a futurists um as anyone because if you understand the past at least you get a sense of the future I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley. I'm essentially a technologist as well. Um, there's a lot of talk about the future of war being that of AI and of machines, smart robots, algorithms fighting one another. What do you make of these predictions? Is the future of war uh, the algorithm? I think I've always been fascinated by technology and we've, I think, assumed that the new technology will make war very different. And Sometimes, I mean, the advent of gunpowder and of air power made war. We're now seeing the advent of high-tech war and, and the use of artificial intelligence. I think the nature of war totally. I mean, it's not only really become like some sort of um, super video game. If you look around the world, are wars that would have been familiar to soldiers ages or familiar to soldiers in the mobile wars. I mean, these are wars on the ground often long time, um, often using civilian images. I mean, the wars that, that are going on around the world today um, are in some way familiar with the wars of the past. And so we're going to see, but I may be wrong, is a continuing utterly miserable low-level wars which continue to cause great death and destruction and turn people into these with the advent of very high-tech war. And how the combination is going to work out, it's anyone's guess. I think some of the very powerful nations are going to, but they are going to have to worry about some of the low-tech things that are happening. I mean, I think they're going to have to live in war. They're going to have to worry about terrorist attacks, about asymmetrical war, where those who are weaker will use, as they have been using, the tactics of terror. 
everyone should must read uh, Margaret's new book, Margaret Macmillan, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. This is not a book about the now. This is a war about both the past and the future. It's erudite, readable, and uh, I think quite moving in many different ways. As she says, war brings out the best and the worst of us. I know, uh, Margaret, uh, you're stuck in Toronto, if that's the right way of putting it, during COVID. Um, this COVID crisis seems to be bringing out the best and the worst of us too. What what else, in addition to your new book, should people be reading in these strange times? Well, classics, and I, I don't know whether this is a recommendation. I'm certainly doing um, When I was doing this book, of course, I reread War and Peace, which is one of those books that you can read and you always see something different. Middlemarch, another attempt. Um, I read it when I was young, and then I tried it again recently and couldn't get into it. So... I've just in lockdown. It's middle March. I'm absolutely determined to try and read it. But I've been reading a lot of contemporary fiction as well. I've been reading those. You've got so many at the moment. And so I've been reading quite a few of those. So it's been a time actually when I've had more time because I'm not rushing about um, doing this and that, that I've, I can actually read a lot more. And that I've enjoyed. And so my plans are to keep reading. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me. Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.